Welcome. Welcome, everybody, to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez, Vice President for International Studies here. Turkey is at a crossroads, both literally and figuratively. The country sits in between Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, and it is also about to hold, in just two days, consequential elections, both for the country and for the world. Two weeks ago, The Economist magazine came out with a cover uh, titled, The Most Important Election of 2023. It was, of course, referring to the Turkish uh, elections. This is a vote which will determine uh, whether President Erdogan, who has been ruling Turkey for 21 years in an increasingly autocratic style and in an increasingly erratic fashion, will stay, do more of the same, or go. If he loses, The Economist magazine noted, quote, it would be a stunning political reversal with global consequences. The Turkish people would be more free, less fearful, and in time, more prosperous. Also, in an era when strongman rule is on the rise from Hungary to India, the peaceful rejection of Mr. Erdogan would show Democrats everywhere that strongmen can be beaten, unquote. A loss uh, for Erdogan would also change Turkey's foreign policy. With regard to Syria, NATO, the war in Ukraine, and relations with Europe, the United States, and Russia. But would Erdogan, who has accumulated so much power, really accept defeat? Who are the opposition forces, and what are their chances, and what are the lessons to be drawn from Turkey's turbulent democracy? I'm very pleased that we're going to be able to discuss those questions with two uh, preeminent Turkish experts. And by Turkish experts, I mean experts from Turkey and experts on Turkey. That is, uh, Gurnal Tol and Mustafa Akyol. Gurnal Tol is the founding director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey program and a senior fellow with the Black Sea program. She is the author of the recent book, Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home and in Syria, and she's taught courses at George Washington University's Institute for Middle East Studies and at the College of International Security Affairs at the National Defense University, where she's been focusing on Turkey, on Islamic movements in, in Europe and world politics and on the Middle East. She's written extensively on Turkey-U.S. relations, domestic policies, and uh, foreign, the foreign policy of, of Turkey. My colleague Mustafa Akyol is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, where he focuses on the intersection of Islam and uh, modernity. Since 2013, he's also been a frequent uh, contributor to the opinion pages of the New York Times, covering all sorts of uh, topics from politics to religion and the Muslim world. He is the author of numerous books, including Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance, Why as a Muslim I Defend Liberty, and Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty. The Thinking Muslim, which is a popular uh, podcast, defined Akhil as, quote, probably the most notable Muslim modernist and reformer. I agree with that. And in July of 2021, Prospect Magazine in the UK listed him among the world's top 50 thinkers. So, Welcome to both of you, and um, let's begin with you, uh, uh, Mustafa. There's been a big deterioration of freedom in Turkey over the past decade or more, 
And in fact, in our own Human Freedom Index, uh, Turkey ranks among the top uh, 10 countries that have seen the biggest losses in freedom over the past 10 or 15 uh, years, uh, putting it alongside countries like Venezuela, Hungary, Egypt, Hong Kong, and so on. So my question is, can we really talk about uh, Turkey today as being a democracy? I mean, what kind of regime is it? It's clearly been shifting towards authoritarianism. And whatever name we give the regime, what does it mean to hold elections under that kind of political setting? Uh, thank you, Ian. That's a very good question. And uh, I think Turkey has been testing the uh, example of how oppressive you can be while still remaining as an electoral democracy in the past 10 years. Um, in other words, it's an example of what some scholars, intellectuals call illiberal democracy, an extreme maybe version of that. Ferit Zekeria popularized that term, uh, rightly so, I think, in the 90s. And it, because when we speak of democracy, we often in, in the Western, at least, tradition, think of elections combined with individual freedoms, rule of law, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, checks and balances. Now, when you take all those liberal elements out, and if you only leave ballots, and in a divided society where there are populists, what happens? Well, Turkey is an interesting case of that. And uh, to give you a sense of like how freedom like went down in Turkey in the past 10 years, I'll just share a few things. Uh, there's a law in Turkey which bans insulting the president. The law was always there, but it was not used too much because presidents were never very controversial people. Uh, they were nonpartisan. When Erdogan became president in 2014, he, he soon switched it into a partisanship, like, par like a partisan presidency. He himself is very divisive. So this law which penalizes insulting the president from one to four years has been used in an unbelievably you know, uh, aggressive way. More than 160,000 people have been prosecuted in the past 10 years for insulting the president. These are official figures. Like, how does it go? Like, I mean, on Twitter, you say something against the president, a little bit, you know, too critical. The police shows up at your door, and you go there, and you're detained a little bit, or maybe not, but, you know, you get a, a legal case. Uh, re the most recently... <laughs> A 13-year-old was taken to court for insulting the president on a WhatsApp chat. Uh, in another famous case, two men were chatting on the bus, and one of them insulted the president, and one of the responsible citizens heard that and called the police, and when he got off the bus, a few minutes later, he was arrested by the police and you know, taken there, and so on and so forth. Now, is this a democracy? Well, it sounds Sovietic or very authoritarian in many ways. Well, there are free elections, competitive elections at least, right? I mean, how free it is, that's debatable, but competitive elections. Also, for example, Erdogan, uh, I'm, I'm saying these things because, like, why freedom of speech is important. Like, here's a case. Also, another thing that has happened in Turkey in the past 10 years is that all the major newspapers that Turkish people knew and read, like Milliet, Hurriyet, these are papers everybody, like New York Times or Wall Street Journal, uh, suddenly they all changed hands. Their owners felt a pressure to sell these newspapers. Some people bought these newspapers. These new businessmen turned out to be the best friends of the president, surprisingly, and all, they all fired all the journalists who were critical of the government's line and replaced them with propagandists. 
basically like imagine this as like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe, all of them becoming Breitbart like in 10 years for some curious reason of, you know, and this is happening because judiciary has become a handmaiden of the government. So by looking at all this, it's my country, Turkey, it, it's really sad, I mean, what, what has happened in Turkey. And I think it's a lesson for really being strong about defense of freedom, which should not be reduced to mere ballots, because in, in that case, it can go down to the tyranny of the majority, which is what Turkey is looking like. However, despite all this, elections in Turkey have been genuine, real, like not rigged. People say, you know, talk, I mean, I, I had these conversations in Washington. Oh, you said people rem remind Stalin's code. I mean, it's not important who, who votes, it's important who counts. Well, Turkey is not that. Uh, for a few reasons. One is, since 1950, Turkey has competitive elections that are not rigged, and there's a system of doing that well established. Uh, there's open vote, everybody, opposition parties are there, open count, there's a, there's a judicial body. Erdogan has been packing that body with his people, but still there are signs that they're not totally apparatchiks of the ruling party. It's not easy to cheat in a system like that. That's why Erdogan's ruling party, AKP, lost Ankara and Istanbul to opposition in 2019, which was a major blow for them. They actually were unhappy with the results, so they recast it uh, in Istanbul, but it turned out worse. So it shows that elections still matter. Um, that's why these elections have been very interesting, uh, because there is now there are certain signs that, oh my god, the opposition is stronger than ever before. Uh, and one is the big economic downfall in Turkey because of Erdogan's irrational policies mostly. Uh, that has brought in poverty to society that has been more prosperous before. When Erdogan was doing the right reforms in the early 2000s. Uh, and the opposition bloc is this time more united than ever. Uh, you have Turkish nationals and Kurdish you know, left and even some uh, religious conservatives who are disillusioned with Erdogan, I call them the never Erdoganists. <laughs> they are now in the opposition bloc. They, they changed the religion versus uh, secularism dilemma, which has been very, they at least complicate that to some extent. So uh, that brings us to a very interesting reality where, oh my God, it's a very authoritarian system in many ways, but it can change, change hands. But uh, what are the chances exactly? I think Gunnar knows better than me, and I don't want to take more, uh, much uh, from yeah. our time. Uh, but yeah, I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, Gunnar, you recently wrote that if, if President Erdogan wins another term, Turkey will degenerate further into authoritarianism, in which elections will not matter. Um, can you tell us what is at stake with these elections, and maybe also uh, possible scenarios. Sure, and before that, thank you, Ian. Uh, thank you, Mustafa and Cato Institute for putting this, this together. It's a pleasure to be with you today. A few things about uh, what Mustafa has just said. Um, uh, he described Turkey as an illiberal democracy, uh, and I disagree with that. I think uh, we've long passed that point uh, because Erdogan managed to dismantle democratic institutions to such an extent that we can safely call Turkey an, a, a competitive authoritarian regime where 
uh, elections are still there and they are real, but they are not free or fair. Uh, so, uh, and our, Mustafa mentioned uh, several instances. Well, basically said that elections do matter, and I uh, and I agree with that. But the anxiety around election security, particularly among the country's opposition, is not really unfounded. Erdogan has built a track record. In 2015, for instance, uh, his ruling party lost the parliamentary majority. He didn't do anything illegal. He just stalled coalition talks to be able to call for a rerun of elections. And he did, in a few months, uh, he managed to uh, recapture the majority. In 2017, Turkey held a very controversial referendum that switched the country's parliamentary system to an executive presidency that granted unprecedented powers to Erdogan. And international observers raised a lot of concern about um, how free those elections were. They were widespread allegations of fraud. And on the day of the referendum, the country's top electoral body made a decision to accept 2.5 million unstamped votes. And in 2019, too, when Turkey held uh, uh, municipal elections, Erdogan didn't accept the election result in Istanbul. So there is a, those who are really worried about what might happen on Sunday, um, they are right in some ways. But in others, I think, uh, we are excited about the, about the elections, mainly because I do think elections still matter, and, and several reasons for that. I think... Uh, obviously all, and I, I said this in a recent piece that I wrote for foreign policy, not all autocracies are created equal. Especially in this town, when we talk about autocracies, we have this tendency to um, to put together Russia, China, and, and Turkey in the same bag, but there are wide differences uh, among those countries. In Russia, for instance, before Russian elections, we don't just... Um, have to make a guess about the outcome. In Turkey, that's not the case. There is still a lot of uncertainty. People call it a very, it's going to be a very um, tight race. So that uncertainty itself around the, the outcome of the election makes Turkish case different than others like Russia and, and China. Um, and, and one more thing about um, my expectations, I think... Um, Again, in autocracies, you ask Mustafa how um, Erdogan managed to, how we got here, basically. Turkey was never a perfect democracy. It was an aspiring democracy. And yet, here we are. Uh, Turkey ended up being a, a, an autocracy. Uh, and I think Erdogan, um, autocrats, they don't really need majorities to dismantle and destroy democracy. All they need is a divided opposition. And Erdogan has always relied on alliances to take incremental steps uh, to dismantle democratic institutions. Uh, he has done that. And the opposition really has been a blessing for him because it's been very divided. So here we are, and, and I'll tell you why I'm optimistic about the prospects of, of Turk the Turkish opposition in this upcoming vote. And that is because Erdogan has nowhere else to turn. He, uh, I think, ran out of options in terms of alliance making. He, in the past, allied with the Kurds, liberals, social democrats, uh, um, but right now, Islamists, and right now, he doesn't have that many options. He's still a popular leader, don't get me wrong. He still commands 40 to 45%, but that is not enough to capture a clear majority 
on, on Sunday. And the second reason why I'm optimistic about, about the opposition is that, as Mustafa mentioned, they are uh, very unified now. In 2018, when Turkey held presidential elections, for instance, Erdogan captured 52%, and that was, um, that was his peak of popularity. That was the most votes he could be able to capture. In 2018, uh, I think the political context was radically different than the political context that we're facing now. In 2018, there were several opposition candidates, five of them, running separately against Erdogan. And today, we have uh, two. Uh, and Kılıçdaroğlu, he is the uh, candidate of the main opposition bloc, and we have another uh, marginal uh, figure, Sinan Oğan, running from the far right, um, uh, used to be a member of the far right party, and now he has a nationalist coalition, but pollsters put him, his support somewhere between two to six, seven percent. So I think uh, on Sunday, the opposition's Kılıçdaroğlu's prospects of a win in the first round is strong, uh, but there is also a possibility that the vote could go, um, go to a runoff. But I don't see a scenario where Erdogan uh, secures a victory on, on Sunday. I think it's very grim. But you've said that uh, you don't think that there are actual fair and free ele elections. So suppose that the opposition does uh, win, at least in the first round. What do you think the scenario would be under that uh, unfair system. That's right. So let's imagine a scenario. On Sunday, uh, opposition wins, but only by a narrow margin, right? So what are Erdogan's options? He could easily pull a Trump and say that elections were stolen and that he doesn't accept election results. He could do that, but for him to be able to change the result, he needs uh, the backing of, of Turkish bureaucracy. And I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Turkish bureaucracy, uh, major bureaucratic institutions, the security forces, the military, and the, the, the country's electoral body are going to be backing an Erdogan who has just lost an election, no matter how narrow um, th that loss was. So that gives me hope uh, that uh, he does control the top um, level bureaucracy, but there are others in, in Turkey's institutions who first fear that they might face legal repercussions if the opposition uh, ends up winning the vote, uh, becoming uh, the government. And second, many of them truly think that another Erdogan term would be devastating for the country. You recently wrote, uh, Mustafa, that the scenarios are the good, the bad, and the scary. It sounds kind of like what uh, Gronel is saying. Um, thank you, Ian, yes. And Gürtel, I think we don't disagree much on illiberal democracy. I mean, electoral authoritarianism or competitive authoritarianism is maybe an advanced form of illiberal democracy. Yes, Turkey is on that slope, like how far did it go? And ultimately, does democracy totally die within? So, I mean, that's actually what you foresee not happily, but I mean, if this election Erdogan gets it, maybe after that, even elections will not matter much because everything is steadily going towards a very you know, dark end. So we, we are, are seeing that. But, uh, but coming back to Ian's question, uh, yeah, I mean, I just wrote this piece 
What are the, and people ask me, like, what are the options? Uh, and uh, one thing I want to say th is this. It's actually remarkable that despite the economic collapse, despite earthquake and the government's terrible reaction to it and, and the, the corruption that actually led to so many people dying in, 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 in this earthquake, Despite all that, Erdogan still is very popular, right? Still, I mean, all other opposition parties coming together, hoping to win him. So, I mean, that's a political phenomenon. And I think, and it's very interesting that his narrative has changed over the years. In the earlier year, years, he was making reasonable reforms. I was supportive. I mean, most people that I know were supportive. Uh, he was heading towards the European Union. He was speaking of freedom. He was free market reforms. Turkish economy did really well. Now that's all gone. Now he's building warships and warplanes and, and, and greatness, and he's making Turkey Muslim and great again, and he's defying the imperialists. His allies changed. I mean, his, his allies include now Turkish Maoists headed by Doğu Perinçek, Beijing's man in Ankara, who supports Erdogan because he's anti-American, and that's great. So very interesting political phenomenon, but I think one thing is that he's been cashing on this religion versus secularism thing in Turkey successfully. And I think it's a warning for every society. If you divide the country red versus blue on cultural lines, you know, populists may surf on that and to you know, ultimately erode democracy. So the, the scenarios, um, yeah, I, I see three scenarios basically here. The bad, the good scenario is that Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the opposition candidate, wins. And especially if it's a, decisive, clear victory where you can't say, stop the still, I don't think Erdogan can do anything but conceit. He cannot say, I'm abolishing democracy or something like that. He can't, because his whole narrative is based on the fact that he's elected. The people are behind me. The people being 50 plus, you know, 50 percent plus of the vote, but that's the whole legitimacy, so I don't think he can hold that. Uh, so that's a good scenario. Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu wins and Erdogan has to accept. Some people think that the economy is in such a bad shape that actually he will let the opposition try to manage it and things get bad and come, hope to come back. That's the good scenario still. The bad scenario is that Erdogan can still win. I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, I see a lot of opposition uh, people, my friends saying, oh yeah, this is finished, Erdogan is losing it. I'm not that sure. I think he still has, it's very tight. Uh, a third one is what, uh, the scary scenario. So the, the good one is opposition wins. The bad one is Erdogan wins. The scary one is that the opposition wins with a very small margin, and Erdogan might try to recast it, and he can do something like the stop the steal mo moment here in January 6th in America. I hope that's not going to happen. That would be scary in Turkey, worse than what has happened in, in this town uh, on January 6th. If I could, Ian, say something about, we're, we're talking about scenarios here. So I think the wisest option for Erdogan, imagine if he's, uh, he's lost by a narrow margin, uh, instead of um, not accepting defeat, I think it, it would be wiser for him just to accept defeat and wait for the new government to fail. Because, I mean, the argument here is in personalist autocracies like Turkey, for instance, uh, autocrats, they face worse fates than autocrats in other types of autocracies, right? They might end up in jail, they might end up in exile or dead. So that's why they do everything in their power not to 
let that happen. So they, they fight a, a good fight before accepting the result. But in Erdogan's case, I see those options as not likely. Uh, and that's because I think uh, he's not going to flee the country if he loses the elections because he still has a very strong following, as Mustafa mentioned. It's like 40, 45 percent. It's really amazing for a man who has been around for 20 years. So he still has a strong following. So I think he's going to stay in the country. And if, let's say, he doesn't accept the result and that leads to street violence, that could really he doesn't have the, 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 the 100 support from, from Turkish bureaucracy. So he could face more severe legal repercussions afterwards. And instead, he could just accept the result and just wait for the opposition to fail, which is not unlikely given uh, all the pressing and serious problems that the country face, and we will have a new government if the opposition wins that's going to be ideologically very diverse, and it's going to be difficult to keep them together. Right. Um, you, you said, which I think is accurate, that you don't need a majority in order to be in the position that Erdogan has been in. Um, you can flip a country, and I've seen this in Latin America and Venezuela and other countries, uh, with the minority of the population. And um, I think that seems to be what he's trying to do. But the question I have for you is going back to this issue of how popular he is. I mean, the economy is doing terribly. There's more than 40 percent uh, inflation. The, the currency has uh, devalued tremendously. Things aren't going well, and yet he still has uh, a big chunk of the population behind him. Why is that? How come that persists? It's not just, I imagine, it's not just because the opposition has traditionally been divided. That, that's right. Well, I think you, you have to really look at um, the people who are still on Erdogan's side. I think some of them are tied to him ideologically. So no matter what happens, they're always going to back him. Because this is what they think. They think they we're talking about uh, conservatives and Islamists. We're talking about people who fear, and that fear has been fed by Erdogan. They fear that if the opposition comes to power, they're going to lose all the privileges that they have secured under Erdogan. right? Because we're talking about a large uh, a middle class, uh, conservative middle class. Erdogan came to power and lifted them out of poverty. So they now have privileges that they were denied by the previous, the secularists uh, in power, the secularist establishment. He saved them from the hijab bans, right? That's exactly right. the liberal aspects of the previous regime. That's exactly right. So you can, if you're a, a veiled woman, you can wear your hijab if you're working for the police force, state institutions. So that is the legacy of Erdogan for them. So they're going to stick with him no matter what. And you have another group of people who are not tied to him ideologically, but they are tied to him because of uh, common interests. Erdogan uh, created a large clientelistic network. So if you are a member of his AAC party, for instance, and if you have that ID card from AAC party, that opens a lot of doors. Um, so I think it's, it's, a, it's a combination of, of those things. Uh, and, that's, uh, and I'm going to say something about what Mustafa said. He's, he's very popular. And I think if he hadn't switched to a presidential system, 
he would still secure a majority because when he first came to power in 2002, what was it? He secured 37%? 34 or 37. So he secured 37% of the vote, and in parliament that translated into almost 60% majority. So under the parliamentary system, uh, his prospects of winning this election was much greater, but he shot himself in the foot by switching to a presidential system which requires a 50% plus majority to win. Surely the reason that um, the middle class is better off today is because of his initial economic reforms in the early years of uh, market-orientedness. That really boosted growth. And then he has turned back on uh, much of that, certainly on, in macroeconomic uh, policy. Per capita income is down 15% just in the last uh, few years. That's a, that's a big um, loss. You mentioned that uh, you think that his best bet if he loses is to just step aside and wait for the new government to fail. So my question is to both of you, um, what are the prospects of a new government actually turning things around economically? What, what are they proposing? Can they get inflation under control? Can they get growth back? Can they get investment back? What's going on there? Um, let me take this quickly. Um, I, Ian, you pointed out something very interesting. Erdogan's early years were a big success economically and politically as well, and that had a lot to do with embracing free market reforms. That was connected to the EU uh, path, but also there were competent people in Erdogan's government, like Ali Babajan, who was the economy czar for almost 15 years, maybe 14 years. Um, and he's a He's a well-educated man who knows the economy and he believes in markets and you know against corruption and, and nepotism and all that. Erdogan got rid of him <laughs> at some point because he did not fit into this letter-day Erdogan, which wanted to manipulate everything through nepotism. Just this morning, I heard Erdogan saying, you know, one of the discussions in Turkey is that the rising prices of everything, including onions and potatoes. And Erdogan said today, those who are raising the onion and potato prices, we know what, why they're doing this. We'll take care of them after the elections. Like, he's been showing now rising prices as a conspiracy against him. And he actually, his followers have been saying the supermarkets are conspiring against the government. I mean, that sounds very communist. And, you know, that, that's the kind of a scary path that they're going. So if Erdogan goes down this path, I would worry more command economy leading to more crash you know, in the economy and shortages and so, stuff like that. But if the opposition comes, um, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the head of the opposition, he's not the most charismatic politician in Turkey, but a lot of people love him because he's not Erdogan, right? And he's, and he's gentle and reasonable and likable person compared to some other figures there. Uh, he's not very great maybe on the economy, but he has Ali Babajan in his team. So some of the people who actually built AKP's success are now in the opposition, and they will be helping the government to make some reforms. It will be difficult, but I think if there's a new government with the opposition, things will start to feel much better. They will have a lot of issues, but there will be just optimism in the Turkish economy. There will be more investment. People are scared to invest because they don't know where this goes. So I would expect to see a, you know, a kind of improvement, some restoration, as they're saying, of sanity, rule of law, and, and hopefully economic progress as well. Good. 
No, going back to the charisma question, I get that question a lot about Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, and this is what I think. Right now, Turkey needs a surgeon because the, da the damage that Erdogan has done to the country is so extensive that the new president will have to build a country almost from scratch, and you really don't need your surgeon to be charismatic. You, you just want him to get things done. And now on that question, will he be able to get things done? That's, I think it's going to be very tough because it's gonna be tough for several reasons. First, the country's problems are really so dramatic, especially in the post-earthquake context. Uh, and he made, the opposition made a lot of promises. Um, switching back to a reformed version of parliamentary system, addressing the country's Kurdish problem, uh, rebuilding institutions and rebuilding trust in those institutions, fixing uh, the economic problems, fixing uh, the, the four million Syrian refugee problem. So that's a long list of problems that will require a considerable, considerable amount of political capital. So the question is, will the new president have that political capital? Because he is, um, his coalition is a diverse coalition. So what happens if Erdogan is not in the picture? Will that coalition disintegrate? Will there be infighting? Uh, and again, my theory is that Erdogan, even if he loses, he's not going to be out of the picture. He's going to be in the picture, which will force these opposition parties to stick together to address the country's uh, problems. Um, and I think in terms of b being able to fix those, uh, provide a solution to those problems, I think uh, there's just, we've seen um, on the campaign trail that actually popular opposition, demand for change is so strong that popular opposition is the driving force here. So political parties, they've made so many mistakes uh, in the last year or so. Uh, their internal squabbling, internal fighting, uh, and yet every time society just called the shots and asked them to get together, get their act together. So I think moving forward, even if there, there is that um, drive or push from certain parties to go their own way, I think that popular demand for change is so strong that they are gonna have to uh, uh, offer solutions. Can you say something about the prospects of US-Turkey relations or Turkish-EU relations under the different scenarios? Uh, well, I think um, if, if opposition wins on Sunday, uh, we can expect a more constructive Turkish foreign policy. Um, in terms of Turkey-US ties, I think there are several uh, drivers there. Um, what the new government's Russia policy is gonna be the key. Uh, because from Washington's point of view, uh, Turkish-Russia, especially Putin's close ties with Erdogan, has been a, a major problem. So how will the new government act there? I think there will be continuity and change. Um, Turkey and Russia are very close trade and energy partners, meaning they will continue to work no matter who wins the, the, the upcoming vote. But on the other hand, the most dramatic change is going to be the new government is not gonna go out of its way to allow Russia to circumvent Russian sanctions. There are right now uh, many Russian companies set up in Turkey and Erdogan basically threw a lifeline to Putin. 
uh, in the aftermath of, of Ukraine invasion. You're not going to see that with a new government. And I think that is going to be welcomed by Washington. And the second question, I think, that will determine the tone of Turkey-US ties is going to be where the new government stands on the Russian missile, the S-400 question. I think there's, there's political will uh, on the part of the, the Turkish opposition to fix ties with, with Washington, with the European Union. Uh, so I think they're all, these are all very positive signals coming from, from the opposition ranks. But I think we should also note that foreign policy is, is not made in a vacuum. So it's how this new Turkey is received by Washington and by European capitals is also going to play a key role on how Turkey-Western ties is going is to play out after the uh, elections. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Gunnar, and uh, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that Russia would prefer that Erdogan stays in power. Uh, there are many signs for that, and it's interesting that Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the opposition leader, tweeted yesterday, if I'm wrong, saying, our Russian friends, please do not interfere in our elections on favor of Erdogan. I mean, I don't know what that interference exactly would be, but there is a belief in opposition circles that Russia can do something to help Erdogan in these elections. Uh, Russia already held natural gas payments, like politically, so help Erdogan in that sense. Uh, and Erdogan's narrative has become very anti-Western in the past seven, six, seven years, eight years. Uh, since his turn but from beginning of 2013. That will change, of course. Turkey will still have some national issues where it will disagree with Washington. I mean, the Syrian Kurd, Kurdish forces for Turkey is a matter of concern for understandable reasons. That will be an issue. But those can be dealt in a more rational and constructive way without the ideological you know, anti-Western narrative. I think that has dominated uh, Turkish policy in the past several years. So before I go to the audience for questions, I'll ask one more uh, question, and that is the issue of refugees and asylum in, in Turkey, particularly Syrians, I think there's something like four million of them in, in the country, and of course that's also an issue that affects the EU and how that's handled. Um, how is that likely to change uh, were the opposition to to, to come into power, it's a tricky issue for any democratic government. Yeah, no, it is, and, and, and unfortunately, what uh, the opposition is proposing is not realistic either. So for a long time, well, Erdogan, I think one of the, maybe the only progressive policy Erdogan had was its um, uh, Turkey's policy vis-a-vis -vis refugees. Turkey had this open border policy and now we have four million Syrian refugees. But because of opposition pressure, Erdogan has made a U-turn on that. Initially, he said that we're not going to send them back. Uh, but the opposition has been pressing on that so hard that Erdogan finally was forced to say, yes, we will send uh, those Syrian refugees back to Syria. Um, and he's been framing Turkish incursions into Syria as the only way to create a deep and wide enough zone so Turkey can send back those refugees. So the opposition is repeating the same line, saying that they will shake hands with the Assad regime, 
uh, to make sure that, that those refugees can be sent back. But obviously, that's against international law. Uh, Syria is still a conflict zone, and uh, a majority of Syrian refugees will not want to go back voluntarily, and you cannot force them to. So what the opposition is proposing is unrealistic. Um, the most, the wisest policy um, from a human rights point of view, and I think from a political point of view too, to make sure that those people are integrated. And that requires granting Turkish citizenship, but that is also a very unpopular position in the current Turkish political context because Turkish nationalism is very strong and there is a strong nationalist backlash against the Syrian refugees. So I don't think there is a viable um, uh, solution here that's offered by either party. Okay, thanks. Now we can take questions from the audience here and also online, uh, in the online audience can join the, the conversation by submitting questions <coughs> directly to the event webpage, Facebook, YouTube, and on Twitter using the hashtag CatoFP. When I call on you, please identify yourself and your affiliation and ask uh, your question. And we'll take a, a first question right here, this gentleman here. Hi, uh, I'm Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. Um, Ganul, in your uh, magnificent new book, Free Plug, uh, you say that uh, Turkey withdrew from an international treaty on preventing violence against women, ironically known as the Istanbul Convention, uh, at a time when violence against women soared. I mean, this is absolutely extraordinary. Um, can, can you shed some light on why the AK Party is siding with wife beaters and alienating itself from civilization as a whole and within the fabric of Turkish society? Uh, is there agreement with that withdrawal? No, absolutely not. And even AKP and even women who uh, are AKP supporters are, are very critical of that decision. Uh, and I think it was a huge mistake on the part of Erdogan because 50% uh, of Turkey's electorate is, is women. And he has already alienated a, lot, alienated a lot of them. So why did he do that? To consolidate his conservative base. Uh, because I think he, look at his allies right now. He allied himself with this fringe Islamist parties, Turkish and Kurdish Islamist parties. Uh, and he is, I think, so desperate for votes that he's counting on the 1.5% uh, vote that the Islamist party has. So it's mainly to consolidate his conservative base. I think his strategy has never been to expand his, his base, right? He uh, understood that that was not possible. So he is trying uh, very hard to make sure that he stops the bleeding in his base, and, uh, and he thought that that was a brilliant strategy, but I think it's going to backfire. I mean, uh, just to add on that, the Istanbul Convention, Istanbul Sözleşmesi, as called, is one of the amazing signs showing how AKP did some right things in the beginning, but then destroyed itself. Like, I mean, it, it was built by, I mean, it was created by with EU, Turkey, and, and AKP was the, the party that signed it. And they were saying, we're so proud, and we're stopping violence against women with this treaty. 
uh, they themselves retreated that because all their early years of we are open, progressive, embracing everybody narrative just dramatically changed into us versus them, us good Muslims, and they are the, the, the evil liberal, liberal seculars West, that's all enemy. And then he retreated to his ideological camp. And to, in that camp, there are very orthodox Islamic groups in Turkey which don't want anything that is too modern about, especially family issues. So they've been campaigning on this, and Erdogan ultimately catered to that. But Gönül is right. Even among AKP uh, cadres, there are more, let's say, progressive or more liberal-leaning people who actually are unhappy with this, especially among the women. But that also shows the direction Erdogan has been, I mean, he's been going tougher and tougher to the hardcore ideological base that he, he claimed to have uh, abandoned 20 years ago when he was getting into this route of the initial AKP. Okay, let's take a question from the gentleman back there. Hello, this is Said Kaymakçı. I have a PhD in history from Georgetown and currently I work as an academic advisor at the Catholic University of America, but I don't represent any of these institutions. My question is to the panel, Turkish experts on Turkey. I see them quite optimistic about the opposition you know, winning and then what happens next. But they were, as admittedly, they were also you know, op, you know, optimistic first 10 years of AKP. When I look at the opposition, what I see is, you know, their autocracies within themselves. Uh, they don't. They never had primaries the way we have in America, like to select their presidential candidate or parliamentary member, you know, candidates for parliament. And the opposition leader imposed himself, and it was even like upsetting within the opposition as the candidate. If it was a primary, probably the mayor of Istanbul or mayor of Ankara would have won. Uh, and we wouldn't even be discussing right now who's going to win the elections. So why should we expect these parties who are not even democracies within themselves, they didn't change themselves, you know, even when they were complaining about the Turkey's democratic ills and so on. Why should they bring democracy to Turkey if they are not democratic within themselves in their own house? Like they didn't tidy their house. So that's my question. So I am not optimistic. I'm not voting because I see both sides the same. Oh, so you haven't voted. Okay, and, but you criticize the current state of affairs in Turkey. Okay, well, uh, there's this President Biden quote that I love. Uh, he said on the campaign trail, don't compare me to the God Almighty, compare me to the alternative. And, and I love that because, I mean, you're saying that you're, you're very concerned about um, the, the, the state of uh, things in Turkey at the moment, but you don't um, do anything to change that so you haven't voted because you think the opposition is, is as bad. Um, well, I disagree with that. Uh, you're right, I don't, uh, to set the, the, the record straight, by the way, I don't think things are going to be very rosy after the opposition wins. As I said, the, uh, the, the problems that the country is facing are tremendous uh, and it's going to be a difficult road ahead, but I think... Um, we're talking about a new government that is promising to put Turkish democracy back on track. At least one party is making that promise. Uh, uh, but Erdogan, on the other hand, uh, his 
campaign pledges have been, if you continue to talk, if you continue to criticize, you'll face jail time. He just said that yesterday. So uh, that's why I don't agree with this notion that opposition is uh, just as bad as Erdogan. Uh, sure, it will be difficult to rebuild the institutions, rebuild the democracy and people's faith in that, but at least I think under a new government, Turkish democracy will have a shot. Okay, you, we, let's uh, I mean, I would agree with you that there is no probably political party in Turkey today who defends liberal democracy as dedicated and as principled as the Cato Institute, I would say, or most people, you know, we would agree with on these issues. But uh, it's a choice between what is better and what's not. I mean, right? I mean, uh, and, and uh, I think in the opposition bloc, for example, there's Deva Party, see, which I would sympathize with when you look at the options. I mean, they are speaking of free market reforms, freedom for everybody, freedom of speech, religion, every, pretty good. I mean, so they want the EU process back. They're not the only force in the opposition, but you know, you can find voices like that. Ultimately, you choose between, as, as Guru said, the alternatives. I mean, AKP is not a very democratic party in itself, but in earlier they did good stuff for Turkey, and I think everybody uh, can appreciate that. In Turkey, had pretty good uh, reforms under Turgut Özal, uh, who brought the idea of freedom to Turkey, freedom of speech, religion, and entrepreneurship. He just started speaking about this, which nobody did before in the political scene. I mean, uh, Turkey had great time. Was it a perfect? No. So. Uh, I think in every society, you don't switch and become a liberal democracy the next day and there's a perfect party to do that. But you go towards freedom or you go towards unfreedom. And, and now we're choosing that. As we know, Turkey is a member of NATO where it's been playing a, a, a critical role, especially with regard to the war in Ukraine. This question comes online from Jonathan Allen. What would another Erdogan term mean for NATO? Uh, well, the first thing that comes to mind is um, Sweden's entry into NATO. I think Erdogan, if he secures a win, I think he will approve Sweden's accession into NATO. Uh, and opposition, too. Erdogan would? Yes. Uh-huh. Well, he dragged his feet um, uh, on Finland, too, uh, but I think that was for mostly for domestic consumption. Um, I think he will. Um, but in terms of the bigger picture, uh, obviously, I mean, t Turkey and Russia are, are very close um, allies. Uh, and in the Ukraine, after the Ukraine invasion, Turkey, Erdogan kept saying that he pursued a very balanced policy. But I see his policy uh, post-Ukraine as more tilted towards Russia. So if we continue to see that, that's going to be a problem for NATO. Uh, but in, in a scenario where the opposition wins, uh, there will still be problems. I mean, I'm not saying that everything is going to be perfect, but um, I, think, I think the new government will be more committed to uh, a more constructive relationship with Western partners. I believe that uh, in foreign policy, Erdogan has been following this line, which, which you can define as eating your cake and also having it as well, which vis-a-vis -vis the West. I mean, he wants to go on full anti-Westernism in terms of propaganda, show the West as the, as the enemy that conspires against Turkey. 
At the, on the other hand, stay in NATO and whatever benefit is coming from that, take that. But at, on the other hand, also get some Russian missiles just in case to balance that. And, and when NATO has enlargement like Sweden, make a deal, whatever we get out of this. I mean, so very transactional in, in, in many ways. So I don't, have a, I don't believe Erdogan has a plan to leave NATO, but growingly Turkey will look like very different from other NATO countries. And how long will that be managed if Erdogan stays in power? I think that's a very good question. I don't think NATO has a blueprint to solve problems like that. I would prefer to stay, keep Turkey as much as possible in Western institutions. That will be NATO, that will be uh, Council of Europe. Because the further tur Turkey drifts away, the harder it will be to you know, restore it, if there will be ever a restoration. And because ultimately there will be some post-Erdogan future, right, for, for some reason. And uh, at that point, uh, I think a Turkey that has become fully in the club of Russia, China, and Central Asiatic, like authoritarian regimes, that would be worse than still having some institutional links. And that is especially true for Council of Europe, which ties Turkey to the European Court of Human Rights. Although Erdogan doesn't listen to what the European Court of Human Rights says, still those institutional links are better than no links. Yeah. Okay, let's take uh, a question right here. Thank you. Uh, I'm Orkun Ayelmaz. I'm with the Political Violence Lab, uh, academic research lab affiliated with the University of California. And this question is specifically for Gunnar Toll, although Mr. Akil can add afterwards as well. You mentioned that since a lot of the bureaucracy in Turkey is currently very compromised by the Erdogan regime, the military, uh, the uh, national companies, the financial sector, and uh, even the Supreme Electoral Council, since many of these people's careers and livelihoods are very much tied to Erdogan's continued strength and you know, his new term. Additionally, many of them are very much like criminals and they would almost certainly, very many of them, tens of thousands of them would be undergoing prosecution if a new regime comes. What makes you think that these people will allow the mechanism for a new transition in the case of a victory by the opposition and how their Western interests would, wouldn't interfere very significantly with that. Thank you. Well, I think the mood has changed in favor of Kılıçdaroğlu, and that's why you're seeing all these leaks coming out of Turkish bureaucracy to Kılıçdaroğlu. Kılıçdaroğlu, I mean, even this latest tweet about Russian meddling in, in Turkish domestic affairs that's linked to uh, the things that, that Kılıçdaroğlu received from, from Turkish bureaucracy. So I think Turkish bureaucracy is hedging its bets, and it's not very untypical. Uh, of, of how bureaucracies operate in, in personalist autocracies. When they see a weak autocrat, they can change sides. So I think right now uh, we are seeing that they are hedging its bets and there, there are several indications. Key among them, which really surprised me, was a decision by the country's constitutional court. Uh, the Constitutional Court made a decision in January to deny the pro-Kurdish party uh, state funds. Uh, that would allow them to finance their election campaign. And that decision has been reversed a month after, despite protests from Erdogan. So to me, uh, th th that was a really striking example uh, of how bureaucracy might be hedging its bets. And one of the key people who was handpicked 
by Erdogan, members of that member of that court, uh, leaked that information to uh, anti-Erdogan press and said that he made that decision, he changed his mind because with the current, he didn't have enough proof. So he made it known to the opposition too that he was doing what was right from a legal point of view, uh, probably to avoid legal repercussions that could come after an opposition win. And another key decision made by the country's top electoral watchdog, which uh, denied an AKP request twice in the last three weeks. So that's why, and also you have to look at the country's security bureaucracy as well, right? I can't speak to um, the police force, but in the military too, I think there is resentment too. There are people who resent um, the Minister of Defense and the stance that he took on the night of the coup, uh, coup attempt. So I think there's a lot of gray zone there, which makes me think that it's not a foregone conclusion that bureaucracy will back Erdogan no matter what. I agree with Gerd, yeah. Okay, we have time for uh, one more question and I wanna take it from online uh, from Peter Metzel of the Liberty Fund who asks, Assuming a victory by the National Alliance, what changes might there be with approaches to the Kurdish question and relations with the Lausanne minorities? Uh, Peter is a good friend, so good to hear from him uh, from Liberty Fund. Uh, uh, quickly, Erdogan actually, in his again early years, he did reforms on the Kurdish question that were unprecedented and like allowing Kurds to speak their language and have a TV of their, oh my God, that was unthinkable in Turkey before that. That was, and then he even came close to a peace deal with the Kurdish separatist group PKK uh, that Turkey defines as terrorist. Uh, that, there has been a huge, incredible U-turn in that. After the collapse of the peace process, Erdogan in 2015, partly because of the civil war in Syria, Erdogan switched back to the very hawkish position. He allies himself now with Turkey's hardcore nationalist party, which always wanted to solve the Kurdish question simply by bombing, you know, as much as you can. So, uh, so he's allies with them. So he's very hawkish on that. He got a small Kurdish Islamist party next to himself, but the main Kurdish vote is with the opposition. Now, in the opposition, there are Turkish nationals as well, too. So this is not an easy issue for Turkey. But I would hope that uh, if there's a new government by the opposition, they would be certainly milder compared to what Erdogan has been in the past few years. Uh, they can initiate talks with the PKK, I think, which is the only way to end the, the conflict, and also realize some reforms. But they will have to struggle within themselves with the nationalists in their own ranks. And if I could just add one more thing, I think it's going to be a difficult thing to navigate for the new government because of uh, what Mustafa just mentioned, that strength of nationalist um, current in, in the country that cuts across party lines. But I think the new president will be forced to address the Kurdish question mainly because um, the alliance that he leads at the moment will not capture a majority in the parliament. Uh, in the next parliament. So that will mean um, the pro-Kurdish party, it's part of an alliance, they will hold a significant number of seats in the new parliament. So um, the new, uh, the, the president will need to ally himself 
with the Kurds in the parliament to be able to realize all the pledges that he's made on the campaign trail. Otherwise, he can't pass, pass anything in the parliament. So that's why I think uh, the Kurds will play a key role in that new parliament, which will force um, the, the, the new president to address the Kurdish question. But I don't expect it to happen um, overnight. It's going to be a difficult, difficult road ahead. Well, thanks very much. I'm afraid that we've run out of time. We're all going to be watching uh, the elections this weekend. And I want to thank all of you for coming and uh, for our audience online for joining us as well. And especially thank Gunal and Mustafa for joining us and speaking with us today. Thanks very much. Thank you.